I'd like to begin the sermon with the passage in Philippians 2, where it says that we should have this mind in us, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself <clears throat> of no reputation and took upon him the form of his servant. And being found in fashion as of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Of things in heaven, of things in earth, and things under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So while we trembled when we think about what he does for us, we don't have to fear because we know that the one who died for us, the one who sacrificed himself for us, is the one who conquered death. He is the death of death and he is hell's destruction, like John Wesley wrote. And we bow our knees together with everything in heaven and in earth and things under the earth. Together we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I invite you to think back to the time when Israel was in Egypt and how that they crossed the Red Sea and how that they journeyed through the wilderness and how they crossed the Jordan and into the Promised Land. If you could parallel that to remission of sins at the Passover... Leaving the world, identifying with the body of Christ and with God's people as they went through the Red Sea. And their journey through the wilderness is like our journey through life. And they're crossing, <clears throat> they're crossing the Jordan River. It's like us standing at death's door and looking across. And finally into the promised land, which is our eternal home, that land of rest. So think of that a little bit, and I would like to, um, for this, the most part of the sermon, I would like to think about how the, the Passover paralleled Jesus' sacrifice. So turn to Exodus chapter 11. I want to begin reading there. So sometimes a writer of a story at the beginning of the story, will give you a background to what the story is about so that you understand what the story is about. A preface or a prologue. So I suppose this sermon is kind of the preface or the prologue to what we understand Jesus' sacrifice to have been. Exodus chapter 11. I want to read from there down into um, partway through chapter 12. The setting here is the tenth plague that was brought upon the land of Egypt because of Pharaoh's hardening his heart. And the Lord said unto Moses, Yet will I bring one plague more upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt, 
Afterwards, he will let you go hence. When he will let you go, he shall surely thrust you out hence altogether. Speak now in the ears of the people and let every man borrow of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor jewels of silver and jewels of gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. And Moses said, Thus saith the Lord about midnight, I will go out into the midst of Egypt. And all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sitteth upon his throne, even unto the firstborn of the maidservant that is behind the mill, and all the firstborn of the beasts. And there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there was none like it, nor shall like it be any more. But against the children of Israel shall not a dog move his tongue against man or beast, that ye may know how the Lord doth put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. And all these thy servants shall come down unto me and bow down themselves unto me, saying, Get thee out and all the people that follow thee, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in a great anger. And the Lord said unto Moses, Pharaoh shall not hearken unto you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. And Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's Pharaoh's heart, so that he would not let the children of Israel go out of his land. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to the number, every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. Ye shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats. And ye shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and the upper door post of the houses wherein they shall eat it. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs shall they eat it. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire, his head with his legs, and with the pertinence thereof. And ye shall let nothing of it remain until morning. And that which remaineth of it until the morning, ye shall burn with fire. And thus shall ye eat it, with your loins girded, and with shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and ye shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and will smite all the firstborn of the land of Egypt. Both man and beast, and against the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord, and the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. And this day shall be unto you for a memorial, and ye shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. And ye shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. And then starting in verse 15 down uh, to verses uh, four, uh, from 14 right there at the end down to verse 20. God establishes the Passover as something that they were to keep from then on. He says an ordinance forever. 
And he tells them how to do it. And then verses 21 to 28, Moses rehearses to what God had told him. So what we had read was what God told Moses. And then verses 21 to 28 is Moses rehearsing the same thing to the children of Israel's elders. And then the rest of the chapter. um, So I want to read um, from 29 down to 36. And it came to pass that at midnight the Lord smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on his throne unto the firstborn of the captive that was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of cattle. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. And he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise up! Get you forth out from among my people, both ye and the children of Israel, and go and serve the Lord as ye have said. Also take your flocks and your herds as ye have said, and be gone, and bless me also. And the Egyptians were urgent upon the people that they might send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We be all dead men. And the people took their dough before it was leavened, and their kneading troughs being bound up, and their clothes upon their shoulders. And the children of Israel did according to the word of Moses, and they borrowed from the Egyptians jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they lent unto them such things as they required, and they spoiled the Egyptians. And then the rest of the chapter is about the children of Israel finally leaving Egypt. After all these confrontations between Moses and Aaron having come to Pharaoh, and asking them to give them permission to go into the wilderness and worship. And Pharaoh would give them permission. He was he would harden his heart. He would give them permission. And he would harden his heart. And so on it went until down finally to here to the death of the firstborn. He finally wanted to get rid of them. In chapter 11. Verse 7. That ye may know how the Lord doth put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. There was a distinguishing between Egypt and Israel. There was a distinguishing between life and death. There was an identity with God. There was an identity with the gods of Pharaoh. There was an identity with God's called out people. And there was an identity with the Egyptians that remained. And there was going to be a difference between those two identities. Now, if you stop to think about it, to do what the children of Israel had been commanded to do, to the Egyptians must have seemed singularly odd to kill an asset as valuable as a lamb would have been just completely ridiculous I I saw in the latest uh, Christian aid gift catalog that you can send a or you can uh, sponsor a sheep in the Middle East and for one sheep it costs you $500 and it I guess they thought that seems high. But in the Middle East, even today yet, a sheep is a very valuable resource. And I suppose it was back then too. A sheep was a valuable resource. And here you're going to take this sheep 
And what you were supposed to do was kill it and catch the blood. And then you were supposed to eat the lamb in a certain way. And then you were supposed to take the blood and, and apply it, strike it on the doorposts and lintels of your house. Now this, this must have seemed completely odd. To kill an asset as valuable as a lamb, as innocent and blameless and unassuming as these little animals are. And then to catch the blood and spread it on the door jams and the lintels to prevent some kind of unheard of pestilence or unheard of death angel or unheard of judgment coming across the land must have seemed superstitious, I suppose. But God had made it clear that it was either going to be the lamb or the firstborn. It was going to be one or the other. And you would think that God would have had the Egyptians' attention by now. After all the other plagues, and I, I don't know for sure, but it seems to me that they had gotten progressively worse. I, I don't know exactly how that was all going to be or how that all was. But you'd think that God would have their attention and they would, you would think that they would have wondered what's going to happen next. So first they had the water change the blood, then they had the plague of frogs, then they had the plague of lice and the plague of flies, and they had the cattle die, and they had boils, and they had hail. And this was quite the hail. This hail was mixed with fire that ran along the ground. I don't know what that was, but it was, it was quite the, quite the storm. They had locusts and they had darkness, and now, they were told that if they don't do this thing with the lamb, that their firstborn was going to die. Some people think that the ten plagues were targeted specifically against the Egyptian deities, and it, 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 may, be that, it may be that's the case. I don't know for sure. But it certainly is for this last one. Verse 12 of chapter 12. He says, against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now, when God says, I am. This is the greatest of all statements that was ever made. I am is the basis of truth. It is the basis of God's existence. It is the basis of what we believe. In Hebrews 6, it tells us that if we want to come to God, we have to believe that he is. So when God says, I am, that's the greatest of all statements. He says, I am the Lord. It means that he is the self-existent and eternal one. And so here it is. The stakes are set. <laughs> he makes this very clear. It is me, the one who is the self-sufficient almighty God versus the gods of Egypt. It's up to you which side you're going to be on. Against the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And if you understood that, you wanted to make sure that you were going to be on the right side of this conflict between these deities. This cosmological battle was happening right here. I am the Lord. I will execute judgment against the gods of Egypt. So there it is. Now one of the things that is amazing is how that God separates his people from other people at the time of judgment. It happened in Noah's time. 
when he was saved from the judgment of the world by water. God saved Noah. It happened in Abraham's time when Lot was saved out of Sodom. And now it's happening again here is that God is calling his people to be distinct and separate because he was going to bring judgment. What I want us to understand is, is that separation from the world at a time of judgment is safety. When it's judgment time, you do not want to be identified with Egypt. When it's judgment time, you do not want to be identified with the people of the world. Separation from the world is safety in the time of judgment. So, as we think about how that we are called to live, separation from the world is the most sensible thing to do. We separate ourselves from the world because of what God will do in judgment. And so God calls and his people respond. God saved Noah. But the funny thing is, Noah had to build the ark. God saved Lot, but Lot had to, sit, had to leave the city. And God saved the firstborn, but the children of Israel had to observe the Passover. So if we want to be saved in judgment, we will also respond to where God calls us and to what he calls us to do. Perhaps maybe we should read 2 Corinthians 6. Just a short passage there. Thinking about separating from the world because of judgment. 2 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 14. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? What concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. There is a difference forever between the church and the world, between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, between light and darkness, between justification and condemnation, between hearing, depart from me, or hearing, come ye blessed of my Father, and inherit it, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. There is a difference marking forever between heaven and hell. So let's go back to our text. God calls the children of Israel out. And he makes a difference between Egypt and Israel. First Peter 2. Ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but now are the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. 
So what makes the difference here in this account is what marks the difference, I should say, is the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and the little. If there is a single most important occasion in all believers' lives, it is the time when the blood of Jesus is applied to that person's life. If there is a most important mark on the believer, it is the mark of the blood of Jesus. Not only does God make a difference between his people and the world and will save them out of judgment, so he marks the difference. But he also provides the marker that makes the difference. The gift of God. So he not only makes a difference, but he provides the marker that saves us in judgment. Just like when God called Abraham to offer his son Isaac. Isaac questioned him. We have the wood and we have the fire, but where is the sacrifice? That was probably a really, really good question. And I'm sure it just sent daggers into Abraham's heart. But we have the most beautiful and perhaps the most meaningful words in the Old Testament where Abraham's response is God himself will provide a lamb for the burnt offering. God will provide. See, God doesn't just make the difference. He also provides the marker that saves in judgment. After Abraham passed the trial of his faith, and he he named the place Jehovah-Jireh, which means in the mountain of the Lord it shall be seen. Or the idea is, is that God will provide. So I guess the question is, what is the mark of the blood on the believer? When just the simplest terms, I believe it is believing that Jesus' blood paid for our sins. It is taking that by faith. Paul's words to the Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. The mark of the blood on a person's life. Think of it. But that's what Jesus is. And that's what he came to do. So he is both that lamb. He is the provider of the lamb and he is the lamb himself so let's think about jesus being our passover lamb john the baptist when he saw jesus coming he said behold the lamb of god which taketh away the sin of the world he was the one who had been prophesied way back in genesis chapter 3 to crush the serpent's head He was the one in Genesis chapter 22 that was typified by the ram caught in the thicket. He was Judah's scepter. He was the one whom the serpent on the pole was looking forward to. He was the other prophet like unto Moses, called out from among his people. He was David's Lord. He was Solomon's song. He was Zechariah's just and lowly king. He was the desire of all nations. and He was the hope of the ages. 
He was all of this, but overarching all of these descriptions and prophecies about him and bringing them, bringing them all into flesh and blood fulfillment was him being the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. He was the Passover Lamb of Passover Lambs. That long-awaited sacrifice. That every one of the Passovers that had been commemorated for these thousands of years was anticipating. Now in 1 Corinthians 5 where it tells us how to discipline in in the church and so on. Paul writes, he says, Purge out therefore the old leaven that ye may be a new lump as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. So think about that. That Christ is our Passover. Christ was fulfilling what the Passover lamb had been anticipating. Turn to Hebrews 9. I don't have a lot of comments to make about this passage, but I want you to to keep your eyes open for how that Jesus is the fulfillment of what the Passover was all about. Hebrews chapter 9, starting to read in verse 23 and reading down through chapter 10. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in heaven should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with a better sacrifice than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth in the holy place every year with the blood of others. That's referring to the, the Passover. For then must he have often suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. For it is appointed unto the man once to die, but after this the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. For the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? Because that the worshippers once purged should have no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, and this is as Jesus speaking, Lo, I come in the volume of the book that is written of me to do thy will, O God. Above when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offering and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, referring to Jesus again, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering 
and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting to his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Wherefore the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that he hath said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them in those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiness by the blood of Jesus, <clears throat> by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having a high priest forever, I'm sorry, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So he was the sacrifice that these sacrifices were anticipating. He was the Passover lamb of Passover lambs. And what we have to understand is that this is now a spiritual thing and the blood that he shed has to be applied to our hearts. Now, one of the things that I was interested in is why did in the in the Exodus Passover, why did they have to apply it to the lentils and the doorposts of the door? Why the door? I'm not sure, but to me, a door speaks into an entrance to where you are. And I suppose that that is what this is about, is that this blood is applied to the entrance of where who you really are resides. The soul that you possess needs to be behind the protection of the blood of Christ. So that when that death angel passes, that he's going to see the blood of Jesus. There's no way that you can withstand the death angel without the blood of Jesus. And this is both in the practical Exodus kind of a way speaking. And it is also speaking um, that there is no way that we can, in judgment, stand without the blood of Jesus. And then it also says that they were supposed to eat this in haste. They were supposed to eat it with their loins girded and with their shoes on and their staff in hand. Now, I don't know how this all was, but apparently they fled in the night and they were going to eat this Passover in the evening before. And they didn't know exactly when they were going to leave. And they were supposed to leave with their skirts hitched up. And they were supposed to leave with their, or they were supposed to eat, I'm sorry, with their skirts hitched up. And with their shoes on, they had their staff right here and they were ready to walk. There's a sense of urgency about the whole occasion. And I think the reason that that is, or what that typifies for us, is that it's because judgment is real. It's because judgment is imminent. And it's because judgment is eternal. See, there is nothing that is really more important to you as an individual than that you are ready to face the judgment. You have to be ready because you don't know when it's coming. And so, we have to have that blood marking 
the entrance to who we really are. So let's think a little bit about the transforming power of the blood of Jesus. Now I just have a, a couple scriptures here that I'd like to read. The one in Revelations uh, chapter 1 says about Jesus who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Zechariah prophesied in that day there shall be a fountain opened to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. When I think of a fountain, I think of something that is spontaneous and something that is generous and there's plenty there. It is flowing. There's a fountain opened. And it's for sin. It's for uncleanness. That's the reason for it. 1 Corinthians 6. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. That's us. It's a picture of who we are. But ye are washed. You're washed. You're sanctified. You're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. That is the transforming power of the blood of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9. Just previous to the passage that we read. Neither by blood of goats and calves. But by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place. Into the holy place. Having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer. Sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh. How much more. Shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The blood of Christ purges from us the dead works that we are in. Hebrews 10. I think we read this. Let us draw near with a true assurance, with a true heart and full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And then First John, I think we open with this passage. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us, cleanseth us from all sin. That's the transforming power. Of the blood of Jesus. It cleanses us from all sins. When our sins are washed away. Not only is the sin removed from us. And it has separated us. From us. Which is the guilt of sin. So not only is the guilt of sin removed from us. But also the power of sin is removed from us. And that's that double cure. That we so often sing about in that old hymn, Rock of Ages Cleft for Me. Let me hide myself in thee, let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed. 
be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. So not only does the blood of Jesus Christ cleanse us from the guilt, which is what, which is what is on our lives because of what we have done, but it also cleanses us from the power of sin that we don't have to live under it anymore. <clears throat> Turn to Romans 6. We're thinking of the transforming power of the blood of Jesus Christ applied to a person's heart. Not only is the guilt taken away, but the power of sin is taken away. I think I'll start reading in verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he dieth unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. Neither yield ye your members of instruments as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves as unto God, as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. It's because of Jesus' death. Now back in Exodus 12, it says that the blood of the Lamb on the doorpost, it says, shall be a token unto you. And that means it's going to be a signal or a sign or a beacon. It was going to be something for the angel to see, and it's going to... The angel is going to recognize and he's not going to enter that door and bring judgment on that household. Now, I wonder, I just wonder if they recognized the importance of the blood of the lamb on their house, on their doorposts and lintels. I, I wonder if they could hardly find enough of blood in this lamb to apply. I suppose that the lintel and the doorposts were saturated. It was going to be very evident that this lintel was painted. This lintel was covered with the blood of Jesus. Do you think, do you really think that they were afraid that their house was going to look too different from the Egyptians' neighbors? Maybe they were just going to apply a little drop to the bottom corners and just a tiny smudge on the top edge. But I suppose, and I'm pretty confident, that when they understood how the life of their firstborn depended on the obedience to the command <clears throat> to strike the blood, that they weren't going to be skimpy with it. So this blood provided safety in judgment. And it, so it was a sign to the angel. and was also a sign to their children. It was an opportunity to tell the story. But it was also more than that. It was a story that was going to tell another story. And that Passover story was but a prologue and a preface to the story of Jesus. And it's just like so many things that don't make sense to us unless we understand the background. We may love a hymn, but if we know why it was written, it becomes more meaningful. So there are many things in the Old Testament that 
provide the background for us to understand. The, the Old Testament writes the preface, it sets the stage, it, it plays the introduction. And, and the, the new becomes so much more rich and beautiful and meaningful and it's, it's easier to be understood as we understand the old. Now, was it the setting of this Passover feast? Some, what was it, 1,500 years later that Jesus was observing the Passover feast with his disciples and he instituted the communion service. <clears throat> so let's turn to Luke chapter 22. This is the background of Jesus breaking bread and drinking the wine with his disciples. Reading a short passage here from 14 down to 22, Luke 22. And when the hour was come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. And he said unto them, With desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not any, any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until, it, until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and, and gave unto them, saying, This is my body which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood which is shed for you. Behold, the hand of him that betrayeth, with, betrayeth me is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goeth as it was determined, but woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. So this... This right here is where Jesus, I suppose you could say, takes the Passover and brings it to what it was really intended to be about. He brings it into fruition and into fulfillment and tells us that now we commemorate the Passover this way in remembrance of what he was done for us. So the first Passover in Egypt and all the Passovers that were observed through the centuries down to the time of Christ were anticipating this one and ultimate sacrifice that Jesus, the Lamb of God, this Passover Lamb, was going to make for us. And He did it once. He was the ultimate one. He was the one that brought all of these into fruition. But see, back in, back, back in Exodus, God had made it very clear it was going to be either the lamb or the firstborn. It was going to be either the lamb or the firstborn. Either the lamb was going to be slain and the, and the blood put on the doorposts and you were going to observe the, the Passover this way or there was going to be death. To avoid death in the family, the lamb had to be sacrificed. So in essence, the lamb substituted for the firstborn. And so it is for us. First Peter 3 verse 18. For Christ has also once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Second Corinthians 5 verse 21. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now we have to understand this verse correctly. That there was not the slightest hint of sin in him. The verse wouldn't even make sense to, to say that he 
was sinful who knew no sin. That doesn't make sense. But it means that Jesus became the sin sacrifice for us. He hath made him to be the sin sacrifice or the propitiation for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Do you see the, the, the fulfillment of this lamb taking the place of the firstborn? So in judgment, it's either going to be our life or the life of the lamb. So think about how much that means to us. It's either going to be our life or the life of the lamb. Think about how much this should remind us of our indebtedness to him. We have nothing. We have absolutely nothing but sin and all those things that Paul writes about where he says, but such were some of you, but now we are washed. That's all we have if we don't have this. But think about how much that we have and how much we are indebted to him. And then also think about how our minds and hearts should be flooded with joy and peace. Because now we don't have these things on our account anymore. We have them washed with the precious blood of Jesus. Think about how this should constantly rekindle in our minds a renewed love and appreciation for Jesus' love. He died for us when we were yet sinners, the just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous. This should move us to be and act and live as he wants us to. What do you think that we are telling our Redeemer if we say we love him and we don't care about how he wants us to live? I think that would be pretty obvious, wouldn't it be? So his sacrifice is the greatest proof of love. 1 John 3.16 Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. We love him because he first loved us. And then our love is evidenced by how we love the brothers. Communion is not just on a level between us as individuals and God. It also has to do with how we love each other. And it's because we express our love and appreciation to God in how we love the brothers. That's what this says. Hereby perceive we the love of God we lay down because he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now there's there's also something else here that I thought was interesting and that is that the Jewish calendar was based on the Passover. It says this shall be the first of months to you. And he orients everything from that day, right? There was the first day of the year. It was the first day of the month when God gave that command. And then 10 days later, they were supposed to take a lamb. And 14 days later, they were supposed to kill it. But that that was pivotal in the Jewish calendar. But I also want to say to have Jesus' blood applied to you is the occasion on which your whole life as a follower of Jesus pivots. Without that, 
you are not one. We, we make much of following Jesus of discipleship, and we should. It's, it's right. It's good. And we should do that. But in order to follow him, we're going to have to believe in him. We're going to have to accept this. His blood will mark every step you make. His blood will mark every decision that you make. The cross where he died will constantly be in your vision. Let's never lose sight of the magnitude of our sins and of our helplessness before a just and holy God. And then let's never lose an appreciation for the depth of Jesus' love. So maybe just to um, refresh that in our minds, let's turn to John 19 and read John's account of the scourging and the crucifixion. This is the lamb being sacrificed. This is what all of that was about. This is what the Passover was anticipating. It's right here. John 19, beginning to read in verse 1. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers planted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe and said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him with their hands. Pilate therefore went forth again and said unto him, Behold, I bring him forth to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then came Jesus forth wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said unto them, Behold the man. When the chief priests, therefore, and the officers saw him and cried out, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said, therefore, unto them, Take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. When Pilate therefore heard that, saying, He was the more afraid. And he went again to the judgment hall and said unto Jesus, Whence art thou? But Jesus gave him no answer. And then said Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee and power to release thee? Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. And from thenceforth Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth and sat him down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. And it was about the preparation of the Passover and about the sixth hour. And he said unto the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto him, unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. And he bearing his cross went forth into a place called the place of the skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two other with him. On either side one and Jesus in the midst. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. 
This title then read many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city, and it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Then said the chief priests of, of the Jews unto Pilate, Write not the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier a part, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam woven from the top throughout. They said therefore among themselves, Let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Which said, They parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture did they cast lots. These things therefore the soldiers did. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by, whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her into his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. <clears throat> and when there was set, now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled his sponge with vinegar, and put it upon hyssop, and put it to his mouth. When Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the bodies should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath was a high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then came one of the soldiers and brake the legs of the first and of the other which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they broke not his legs. But one of the soldiers with his spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. And he that saw it bear record, and his record is true. And he knoweth that he saith true, that ye might believe. For these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled, a bone of him shall not be broken, and in other scripture they shall look on him whom they have pierced. That's the Lamb of God being sacrificed. That's the blood that will save you in the day of judgment. So we're here today to remember that sacrifice. We're here today to remember our saving in judgment. Let's bow our heads for prayer.